Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, this morning I have the privilege and the uh, difficult task of preaching on the longest chapter of the Bible. Don't groan, it's 176 verses. I'm not going to preach on every single one of them, but we should be out by tomorrow if everything goes well. Now, ironically, even though it's the longest chapter of the Bible, its central message is very simple and very concise, and so it ended up being one of my shorter sets of notes. So let's just see how the Lord works and let's get through it. We're going to look at Psalm 119 today, and the title of the message is In Love with God's Word. In Love with God's Word. By the way, that's what the Bibles look like around the time that this psalm was written. They're not books like we have now, but they were scrolls. And I'm thankful for Heath's great drawings. That looks just so cool to me. And you can imagine unfurling that and reading from the Word of God. That's the experience that the psalmist had. Now, how many of you have ever been in love before? Raise your hand. Married people, you better raise your hand. That's just messed up. Raise them high. What is this stuff? Come on. You've been in love. So you remember what that felt like, right? I hope if you've been in love and you're married, you're still in love. But do you remember when it was young and fresh and new and still a little mysterious? Puppy love, as they call it, right? When you're, the, the infatuation is growing. And, and do you remember how much you looked forward to hearing that person's voice? Just receiving a word. Like, you know, when most, most of the time when your phone rings, it's a little annoying. You're like, who is it now? But when you see on the caller ID that person's name, your heart starts to beat a little faster. In my days, it was letters and cards in the mail, and that was a lot of fun because that was, you know, it's really fun getting mail. I don't know why. Email just doesn't compare to getting an envelope, does it? And as you're starting to rip open that envelope, you're getting excited. Why? Because when we love someone, we long for a word from them. You don't have to be trained for that. It's just the way it works. We can't wait for a point of connection with the people that we love. Now, we like to say that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. That's not just cute rhetoric, that's for real, right? When we say that, what we're saying is that Christianity is not just a set of beliefs and rules or a subculture or a way of life. It is a relationship in which we know someone named God through Jesus Christ. If we really believe that, then by extension, I think it's appropriate to say, one measure of the health of our Christian faith is how we feel about a word from God. If Christianity is really a relationship with a God we know and love, then it is a good measure, a self-measure. I'm not going to judge any of you, but you have, you have to kind of measure this in your own heart. How do you feel about that word which God wants to speak or delivered to you in a book? Do you long for it? Do you look forward to it? Or does it feel like a drudgery, a chore which you must endure if you are to be a faithful religious person? I think it is one of the most reliable internal measurements of where I am spiritually, whether I look forward to God's Word or whether I do not. And we Americans, we've got a very complicated and interesting relationship with the Bible. The first observation I make is we own a lot of Bibles, man. We own a lot of Bibles. Listen to this. At least 25 million Bibles are sold every single year in the United States. That was according to figures released in 2006. 
It may have even gone up. I mean, everything keeps going up in America. So by now, it's probably close to 30 million Bibles a year. We spend, as Americans, $2.4 billion a year on Bibles and other religious books. So the truth is, we are buying lots and lots of these books. Another statistic that's interesting, this is based on 1993 numbers, is that 92% of Americans, whether they're Christian or not, own a copy of the Bible in their homes. And for those households that own a Bible, the average number of copies in that household is three copies. The bottom line of those statistics is to say this, we have no shortage of the book called the Bible all over American life. In fact, if you don't have one, rent the hotel room and steal the one that's in that little nightdresser, okay? It's given away by the Gideons. They'll replace it. The Gideons give away 45 million Bibles a year, okay? And they want you to take that. That's why it's there. So it's not even that you can say they're too expensive because they're, they're everywhere. If you don't have one and you're at Harvest and you would like a copy of the Bible, we would be overjoyed to give you a free copy of the Bible. That's something that's not a problem in America. Here is the problem, though. Despite all the Bibles we seem to own, we don't own a lot of Bible knowledge. Let me give you some distressing but humorous facts. According to a Gallup poll, fewer than 50% of Americans polled can name the first book of the Bible, which is, of course, Genesis. Only one out of three knew who gave the Sermon on the Mount. And a great many of the respondents said, I think it's Billy Graham. Right? That's unbelievable. Here's another fact. 25% of Americans don't have any idea what is being celebrated on Easter. They actually think it has something vaguely to do with a rabbit and chocolate eggs, which I have no idea how that even got started. You, you guys heard of Barna. Barna is another, um, he's a Christian researcher, but he does a lot of things like what Gallup does, and he, he found this out. 12% of Americans think that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. That's sad. That's actually kind of frightening. 80% of, uh, of Americans believe the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. Now, I don't mean to embarrass you if you're one of those 80%. You're like, dude, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible, Okay. It doesn't, in fact, what the Bible actually says is God helps those who can't help themselves. It's good to try to do something to be diligent, but it's actually opposite the real message of the Bible, which is grace and mercy. Listen to this. A USA Today poll found that 50% of high school seniors think that Sodom and Gomorrah were a married couple. And, you know, here's another one that I didn't make a slide for, but at every year at Wheaton College, and this is a Christian campus, the incoming freshmen are given a Bible knowledge test, and so these are the ones who are going to a Christian school to learn the Bible. They ought to fare a little better, but one-third of them had no idea that Matthew was an apostle. Another one-third of them had no idea that the Christmas story was contained in the Gospel of Matthew. And they're coming to Bible college. The bottom line of all this is there is a serious indictment on our culture that we own the book called the Bible, but we don't own the content of that book at all. What secular newspapers are calling this state of affairs is the biblical illiteracy of America. 
And that's a serious problem. And as a pastor, it's one of the challenges I'm facing because it used to be that a preacher could preach the nuances of the Word of God because every American, even those who are not religious, had some passing knowledge and awareness of what the Bible said, but not anymore today. Even people growing up in the church are foggy about what the Bible says. And that's why we're preaching this series called 100 Things You Should Know from the Bible, so that even if you just leave it completely unread, at the very least, if you hang out at our church for two years or three, you'll at least know 100 things from the Bible. I like, to, I like to hope that you know more than that, but the truth is we do have an epidemic of serious biblical illiteracy. Now, how did the state of affairs come about? I think a big part of the explanation is that while we own the book, we simply haven't read them. How many of you have lots of books in your house that are decorations? That's right, a lot of dust. You pick titles that look impressive so your guests go, oh, you, you read him, that's interesting. <laughs> you read Emerson and Thoreau, wow. You haven't read Emerson or Thoreau, you bought Emerson and Thoreau, right? And that's part of the problem is that we have this mythical illusion, this fallacy, that owning the Bible means knowing the Bible. And it simply doesn't. Books don't read themselves. And so if we're going to become a people of the book, the Word of God, one of the things we're going to have to do is learn to actually open it and see what that thing says. Now, <clears throat> when you look at Psalm 119 then, it's a bit of an annoying book to read in America because it expresses sentiments that elude many of us. You've got passages where the guy's just going on a long riff, and it's a very poetic 176 verses of just going, I just totally dig the Bible. I love it. It's just finger looking good. I, I just love every minute I spend in it. I, hours pass. I stay up all night reading it. And we Americans, we read that, that chapter of the Bible and go, oh, shut up already. By 100, after 176 verses of that, you're feeling like, who is this guy? <clears throat> As one person said in my community group, I hate this dude. He makes me, he says things that I want to feel, but I just don't feel. And so I've been asking this question as I've been reading these verses all week. What kind of life produces this genuine passion about God's Word? What kind of life, what kind of conditions are necessary in order for a human being to feel these things without being a liar? And I, <clears throat> that's a lot of verses. I, didn't, I wanted to spare you because I love you. I could have come up with a list of 20, but I narrowed it down to a list of three things which I really think as preconditions need to be there for our hearts to grow more and more in love with God's Word. And the first of those things is committed investment. Committed investment. Another way of saying that is, if you really want to grow in love with God's Word, you're not going to get it by reading it like a fortune cookie, one verse at a time, one verse per month. You've got to be willing to dig into it, to really get your sleeves up and your hands dirty and roll up everything into that. Okay? That's the way that we grow in anything in life. <clears throat> There's a Christian publishing company named Tyndale House, and they ran a survey because they, they publish Bibles. And they're wondering, how come people are buying them but not reading them to get to the heart of that? They surveyed a bunch of people. And here's what they found. 64% of, of the people surveyed said the reason they didn't read their Bibles is because they're simply too busy. How many of you kind of feel that way too? It's like, 
it's a big book and I just don't have the time to read the Bible. You know I'm setting you up, right? So don't actually raise your hand because I don't want to embarrass you. But that's the legitimate sounding protest, the reason why I can't read it. But then I also did a little more digging around on the web and a couple of the people at our church work for this company. According to A.C. Nielsen, in their recent what they call three-screen survey tracking viewership of television content on three screens, television, the internet, and mobile devices. So it's not like a, a, a clause, that a loophole, if you watch it on your iPod or if you watch it on the internet, on Hulu. It's all the same. Television viewing right now, the average American watches an average of 5.1 hours of television every day. That's more than 20% of a 24-hour period. Think about that. How many of you have contributed to that number at all? Any of you? That seems pretty high to me, but those numbers seem to be pretty reliable based on the data that they've been collecting. And when Nielsen collects data, it's based on, did you watch this? Well, then if you did, tell me what, it, what happened. And so they're trying to confirm, did you actually really watch it? And they sell this data to advertisers. 5.1 hours of TV per day. And then we say to the Word of God, I really don't have time to spend in the Word of God. I think somewhere there is a disconnect between what we say we believe and how we've arranged the affairs of our lives. When, there, it seems to be that there's this relationship between loving, uh, loving something and having a committed investment. And the, the common logic goes like this. When I love something, then I will commit myself and invest in it. Right? Isn't that the way it goes? I love golf, and so I go golfing as often as I can. But there's another dynamic that seems to be just as true in life. That those things which we commit ourselves to and invest in, we grow over time to truly love. That's why God said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not just that you put your treasure where your heart is aimed, but your heart follows where you throw your treasure. And whether that treasure is time or energy or the hours in a day or, or whatever other resources you have, there is this cyclical relationship between love and investment. And I think the reason some of us feel cold about the Bible is that we have made it such a peripheral, negligible part of our daily lives. It sits out, and some of us even have a rectangular sunspot on the back ledge of our car where the Bible gets thrown every Sunday after church and the sun beats down. The front cover of your Bible used to be black, but it's gray now. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's a joke, of course, but some of you are going to go and repaint the, the back ledge of your car this week, aren't you? If it's not red, it may as well be blank on its pages. It may as well be hollowed out so you could put your jewelry in there and hide it from your friends. And so this is the idea. When we read Psalm 19, listen, listen to the language that the psalmist uses. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do you pick up the intentionality that's contained in those words? He has done something with God's Word that doesn't get done on purpose. You know, he didn't go, I was walking with the Bible in my hand and I tripped and it fell open. Oh, it came in. He opened it himself. And what I'm learning about the Bible is that strangely, it eludes me, the Bible doesn't just make time for itself. I must set aside the time 
to really dig into it, it requires from me a genuine investment of myself. And that's not a foreign concept because in just about everything I take seriously in life, I never grow in it unless I invest myself into it. Isn't that true? Do you know that I'm probably the happiest golfer in this room because I go so infrequently that I haven't gotten to that point where I get mad at myself. I know I stink. I have no expectations I'm not going to stink so I can enjoy the birds and the, the wind and the grass while the rest of you are breaking your putters over your thighs. Do you see? And that's because I haven't totally committed myself to golf and so I'm going to stay at this level till the day I die. I'm cool with that because I can't stand to watch the misery in your faces when you're mad at your game. It's the worst round of my life. I want to stay right where I am in this. But there's other things in my life that I want to be very good at. There was a time in my life when I wanted to be the number one player in Call of Duty. I certainly don't want to be a slouch when it comes to the Bible. I read avidly all over the place because I want to be a lifelong student. I make time for my kids because I don't want them to go, who are you, mister? I want them to know who their daddy is. There are things in my life that don't happen by accident. I have invested my whole being into them, and as a result, what happens? You know these Winter Olympics, we're enjoying them, make it look so easy, just, you know, like, it looks so easy. Do you guys realize those people train for four years for a 10-minute event? That's just crazy to me. But that's why they're on the ice and not us. Anything you would want to grow in, it's going to require investment, isn't it? But there's another aspect to it. He says, I have hidden your word in my heart. Right? Here's another one. I will study your commands and reflect, or in other translations, I will meditate on your ways. Another aspect of this then, of committed investment, is that we must carve out not just space and time, but we must deliberately slow things down. You know, last week, I spent a week, actually it was two weeks ago, I spent a week away, I went all the way out to Itasca, and I stayed in a Hyatt Place hotel for the whole week. Ran away from my family, my church, everything, so that I could plug into God, because I was feeling totally disconnected from everything. I, just, I was feeling like I was running, 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 and I couldn't see clearly. So I pulled the plug, and for one week, I just spent time alone with God. I have to tell you, the first two days were almost a complete waste of time. I sat on the, I, I laid on the bed, stared at the city, and mumbled to myself, <laughs> what am I going to do here? I just, I, it was until the third day that I detoxed from the constant rush, and I said, oh, I still have three days ahead of me and nowhere to be. That's when my heart just went, you know that sound a truck makes or a bus makes when it stops at a stop sign? That's the sound my soul made. It stopped. All that pressure just went, and finally I could sit quietly because I wasn't in a rush. I wasn't in a rush to get anywhere. And then my ears opened up to God. And stuff started coming. I, I was like, Raymond, I was filling pages of my notebook with things that I was hearing from God, seeing. And I came away with such a clarity I have not enjoyed in a very long time at this church. I'm turning it into a personal manifesto called Revolution. It has to do with our church and my personal life. None of you get to read it. It's for me and, and me only, between me and God. But things are going to change for me. And I hope things are going to change for our church for the better. You know, uh, Recently, Pastor Matt introduced me to something called Good Earth 
original sweet and spicy herb tea. What's pictured here is the caffeine-free, but that's a waste of our time, right? So I, I'm getting the original. And if you haven't tried this, then this is something you should write in your notes. Buy Good Earth Original Sweet and Spicy Tea. It's, how, how should I describe it? It's killer delicious. Okay? Recently, we were supposed to go um, have, as a staff, we're going to eat brunch together at somebody's house. But I forgot about that, and I brewed a cup of this tea, precious tea. And I was sitting at my desk, and I had just finished brewing, and I was about to take a sip, and I looked at the time, and I said, oh, man, we got to go. We're going to be late if we don't all leave right now. And here I was looking at the clock, looking at this cup of tea, and I had to make a decision. What I did was I chugged it. I just went, I don't want to waste it. I'm going to come back four hours later. It's going to be ice cold. So I just went, gluck, 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 gluck. I learned a couple important lessons. One is you shouldn't chug hot things. <laughs> really hurts. But the second thing I learned is tea stinks when you rush it. Tea is not a beverage you drink in a hurry. Tea is a beverage that only is enjoyable when you sip it slowly and effeminately and you savor it. In fact, I find my pinky rises on its own when I'm drinking tea, right? But that's important because tea is brewed in such a way that when you hit your whole mouth with it in giant gulps, the flavor is too much. It's not pleasant. It's that aftertaste, the finish, the swallow that makes tea so nice. And it's the pace that we associate with tea culture, which is very different from coffee culture, which is <laughs> coffee culture, I'm going to get a frappe lappuccino. And tea culture is just, why don't you sit with me and let's visit for a while. Would you care for some crumpets? And you know, it's that culture, that slow, deliberate, steady kind of pace. That's what we need when we come to the Word of God. You can't really get a lot out of Scripture if your heart is rushed. You can get a lot out of Scripture in five minutes, but it's got to be an unhurried five minutes. Do you understand that? That's what I understand now about a heart that loves the Word of God, is it must make some choices to rearrange things so that there's room and there's space and there's pace for God to be able to speak to us, meet us through His Word. And I think you'll understand that to be true because if you're not experiencing God's Word in these ways, then you probably have a very cold or neutral feeling about the Bible even as you're hearing these words. I think there's a second precondition, an another thing necessary to grow in love for God's Word. And that is a clean palate. It's not ice cream, by the way. What, anyone know what that is? Sorbet. The bumpkins among us had no idea what that is, right? But, you know, most of us are bumpkins. You go to a restaurant that's a little fancier, and right after the appetizer, they bring this out. And you go, hey, how come dessert is coming so early? I ordered a steak. And, you know, you, you look embarrassed. And then, of course, the waiter looks disdainfully at you and goes, that's not dessert, you you pumpkin, it's sorbet. And when you say, oh, what's it for? What do they always tell you? It's to clean your palate. Now, I always thought that was kind of dumb, but it actually makes more sense as I think about it. What they're saying is, our food is so tasty, we've got to extinguish the residual flavor of what you just ate so that the next thing you're about to eat will punch you in the face. So you get the full experience without competing with the residue of other flavors that don't belong in this next experience. Does that make sense to you? 
And I think one of the reasons that we don't savor the flavor of God's Word is because quite often our palates are not very clean. I'm not just talking about looking at naughty things. I'm talking about just eating so much other stuff that we, we actually don't, say, we don't have the capacity to appreciate the full taste of the Word of God. You know, it's possible, and, and I think the reason for the wisdom of this is it's possible for two things by themselves to taste very good but should never be mixed together. Are you with me? These two things should never, ever, ever be mixed together. Some of you might like it. I've had chocolate with orange peel. It almost made me want to vomit. I like oranges. I like chocolate, but I need sorbet in between. Or if not sorbet, I need a good hour <laughs> and a toothbrush. Because I don't want those two things mixing in my mouth and conflicting with each other because the hybrid flavor is disgusting. I'm not here to tell you every other taste you have in your heart or your soul or your mind is poison to you. It's not. It's just that if you're going to get into the Word of God, you need some way of cleansing some of that out. I think this is a strong argument for periodically just fasting from things. You, you heard me famously give that, that message some months ago where I gave up my Xbox and I caused a lot of marital trouble for you guys who like your Xbox. Well, here's my testimony. Ever since just giving that thing up cold turkey, I've experienced a strange sensation. I actually long to read more. I want to because I'm not in a rush to play my game. It's the same way that if you're, like a, if you're used to drinking regular sugary soda, which you really should stop doing altogether, but if you're used to regular Coke and then you go off of it for a month, the next time you drink it, it doesn't, it's not as alluring to you. You start to lose your desire for that and you start to gain an appreciation or a genuine desire for just a clean, cold cup of water. Some of you have experienced what I'm talking about, right? I started drinking diet soda and I can't drink regular soda. It's just too much for me. And so you, you understand that you have to find some way, and often one of the ways that happens is by removing something from your diet so that your palate can remain a little cleansed, and then you regain a new appetite for things you weren't eating as much of before. Quite often what happens is you lose your appetite for what is less healthy, and you gain an appetite for what is more healthy. You know, a good, a, a good example of this in my life is my wife, Jeannie. I'm not a morning person, but my wife is a morning person, and, and I'm a very light sleeper, so when I hear noise, I do wake up, but you know, I, I can get myself to just kind of lay there in bed and stay. But I hear her every morning, 6.45, before the kids wake up, have to rush to school. She gets up intentionally at that early hour. She goes into our bathroom, not, not exactly the most lovely place for a study, but that's where she does it. She has her Bible and her Omega books and all that laid out there, and she has a little mat for her knees, and she's in there reading her Bible, studying, praying for our family and our church, and every morning, pretty much without fail, and I realize that's what keeps her centered. When she's running the children's ministry and raising four children and married to a giant man-child like me, what keeps her centered and sane is not the tw two times a year I take her out on a date. I promise you, that's not what's got her grounded. It's these early morning times where before she does anything else, she gets into God's Word. And you know what's interesting? Someone once told me when I was a younger man, a good rule of thumb is the first thing you eat every day 
should be the bread of God's word. That's a good way to make sure your palate's clean, right? It's the first thing you taste. I'm just not enough of a morning person to pull that off. So I do my Bible reading all day long in increments. My wife is a great example to me and an inspiration to me of somebody who regularly keeps that appointment with God. I think it's important, it's very important that we develop this habit, this practice of cleansing the palate. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. What vivid language to describe the way God's word tastes to the heart, to the ears, to the eyes of someone who's falling in love with it because their palate is cleansed of other things. Now, we don't know who wrote Psalm 119, but we do know that David wrote these words in Psalm 19. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight to life. Now, listen to this. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. Now, if you can see the, the similarity between that language, which makes us have a hint that it's possible David is the author of Psalm 119, even though he didn't show off and sign it with his name. That would make a lot of sense to me, because what I find is that we, we consider words sweet if we're sweet on the one saying those words. Do you understand that? I think David had a unique relationship with God. And it's not just that the words themselves, because if you really think about it, apart from knowing God, the Bible is just another book. It really is. It's a great book, but if you don't know God, all it is is just another book. It becomes sweet to us when the one who issues those words becomes also sweet to us. I learned early on in life that the right words from the wrong person are not a desirable thing. The right words from a wrong person. This, this is the best picture I could come up with to describe what it felt like to be at the junior high dances at Woodland Junior High School. And there would be this big gym, and the girls sat on one side, and the boys sat on the other side, and you'd have to make that long trek across and ask a girl to dance. I wouldn't want to ask that first girl on the left to dance. She looks mean, right? She looks like she's just going to shoot you down before you... But, you know, that would be the experience. You'd walk across and see a girl... You, you know, you look for the one limping gazelle and you go, I got, I got the one that's going to say yes. And you already know before you even get up to her whether she's going to say yes or no because you can see without mistake the disappointment in her eyes when she realizes you have zeroed in on her and you go, oh dear. And I would go up to these girls and ask them, would you like to dance? And they would just go, no, no. This is mean. I learned how to handle rejection very early in life. And it was good training because I had to hear it over and over and over and over. Now, feel sorry for me. I feel sorry for me. <laughs> but that's when I realized, even though every girl wants someone to ask them to dance, they want someone better than me. <laughs> and do you realize that the right words from the wrong person are not welcome? So you can't just keep opening the Bible and going, how come it's not exciting to me? How come everyone else seems so excited about this book? I just get as cold as a dead fish when I read it. The answer is not to find the right chapter to start on. The answer is not, oh, well, why don't you read Song of Solomon? It's got some salacious stuff in there. It'll get your juices flowing. That's not the answer. The answer is not to find different parts of the book, but to reexamine how you feel about the one who wrote it. 
Because when you begin connecting in your heart to God, His words become sweeter and sweeter still. You will feel about God's word the exact way that you feel about God Himself. When we come to the Bible then, we always want to set the table properly. We want to remember what we're doing, whose words we're reading, and who this God is to us. Many of you have said to me, I remember what it was like to be a Christian when I was in my late teens and my early 20s. Everything was so fresh and innocent and clean and new and exciting. I haven't felt that way in years. But you know, you know what hasn't changed? God, he's still that God you knew when you were an idealistic 20-something person discovering the love of God for the first time in your life. And sometimes what we just need to do is remember that still the same God who's ready to meet us anytime we want to approach him. And setting that table sets the mood for the meal you're about to eat. Let me give you one last condition that I think is so important for God's word to become sweet to us. And that is an obedient response. I always feel a little powerful when I walk into a store and I ring that bell. Because I know that after I... I just wait, and based on my summons, someone has to come running to where I am. Now, that's that's the fleshly side of me. I like that little power trip, because I don't get that much of it. So I just ding, and I just wait, and here they come. And I like that feeling. Can you imagine being really wealthy and having a butler and that little bell by your table? Ding, 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 and they just come running every time you call? I'm sure if I'm a store owner, I'm going to have mixed feelings about that bell. Because as the proprietor of the establishment, I'm going to resent the fact that some stranger walks into my shop and rings and I have to be at a beck and call running out there. It's a little demeaning to have to run out in response to someone else's summons. But you have to remember as a store owner that the person summoning you wants to give you money. That softens the blow, doesn't it? It's not a bad thing to respond obediently to someone's summons if the reason they're summoning you is to bless you to give you a benefit in your life. And I think we sometimes forget that the reason God calls us to obedience is because our lives are better off when we obey Him. You can try it on your own, by your own wits, and often you will make enough of a mess of things that you need counseling. But when we obey God, something mystical happens in our lives. Things start to take shape and form and they work because the one who designed the system is giving the the subroutines that run the machine now. That's a powerful thing. And I think when God calls us to read his word, his then immediate next step for us is, do what I just told you. If you're a parent, isn't it annoying when you say to your child, hey, go put these socks in the hamper. And they take the socks from you and they're just still sitting there. And you're like, go! What are you doing still standing here? I didn't put the socks in your hand so your hand will smell bad. Alright, how's that? Better? Where was that? Yes. So when God gives us something in his word, the implication is clearly this. I'm not telling you this to inform you. I'm telling you this because I want to see something actually move in the physical world. 
I want to hear the pitter-patter of size 11 shoes on the floor. As you understand that I am your father and I've given you something to do and if you do it, your world will start to work the way I always intended for it to work. Listen to what the word of God says, the way this whole psalm starts off. Verses 1 through 8. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your principles. Then I will not be disgraced when I compare my life with your commandments. When I learn your righteous law, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your principles. Please don't give up on me. I love the way the New Living Translation renders the first eight verses of this psalm. It is such a heartfelt, earnest desire to live according to God's Word. And I'm telling you, that's not something that's based on the perfect record you've already demonstrated. It's based on the desired future you want for yourself. It's a way of saying, I know this is not what I've done, but this is what I want. And that attitude makes an amazingly big difference in the way the Word of God impacts our lives. There's a difference between God, I want to live it, versus, well, let's see what you got to say. Convince me to do something differently. That attitude shapes the way that we respond to our Heavenly Father. I think that if you have the intention that everything you read, you will then translate into some physical world response. It will transport the Bible reading experience away from the written word into something quite a bit more dangerous and exciting. It's like the same thing as when you've got all these little travel books and you read. How many of you go to the library or Barnes and Noble and you just grab one of those and just dream about all the places you'd love to go someday? Travel books are never as exciting as the moment when you couple it to a passport and you actually book a ticket somewhere. Isn't that true? I remember seeing photos of the Great Wall of China and thinking, even as a little boy, one day I'm going to do Kung Fu on the Great Wall of China. It has been my privilege that I've gotten to do Kung Fu on the Great Wall three times. I even have photos to prove I've done Kung Fu on the Great Wall of China. And the thing is, the books were interesting, the photos captivated my young imagination, but nothing compares to going there. That's when China becomes alive for me. When it's not just a place I've become an expert on, but a place I've been to. And do you realize, once you're in China, you start revisiting the pages that are dog-eared in their travel guide and saying, where was that restaurant? Because no longer are you saying, I'd like to eat there someday. You're saying, I'd like to eat there for lunch today. It's a whole other qualitatively different experience. I think the reason that the Bible has become boring for a great many of us is because all it is is words. And after all, it just starts going, it's describing a place we've never been and are likely to never go. By your fourth travel guide on China, if you haven't gone there, something in you will die. Do you understand that? You will go from dreaming of China to resenting the very existence of China. Because it tantalizes you, but it never touches you. I really believe that the Bible is most exciting to those people who put it to the test and respond in obedience and realize this has now a powerful effect on the flesh and blood, brick and mortar component of my life. 
It's changing the fabric of my existence. In fact, I think sometimes that's why we need pastors and small group leaders and other Christians because I, I, I marvel at how little ingenuity or creativity I have as a pastor. A person will come in and they'll have this really complex problem and I'll just go, hey, why don't you just try this? It's a simple thing. And they go, yeah, I've already done that before. I know about it. But when they go from the office and they do it, they always report, that was weird. I did this simple thing you told me and I felt different. Something happened. This is how the Bible comes alive. And I don't like to always distinguish between ethnicities, but if you're one of the Asians in our church and you're hearing this, you especially need to perk up your ears because we have a long heritage we've inherited of Confucian ideals, and we Asians just love us some book knowledge. We learn to play tennis by a book at the library before we even buy a racket. That's just the Asian way. Everything is books and highlighters and research. But if that's the way we treat the Bible... It will never, ever get our blood flowing. I would rather read one verse and obey that one verse than read a hundred and never change my life. Who's got the time to read a book that we render irrelevant through our inaction? You know this famous verse, and I'll just uh, bring things to a close soon with this. Your word is a lamp to my feet and light for my path. I've taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. You can't separate verse 106 from 105. We always just recite 105 and we stop. Thy word is a lamp unto... We even sing it, right? Thy word... I'm not going to sing it. I'm not, I'm not it. It's a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. Did you ever pause to think that the only time that a light for my path or a lamp for my feet is useful is when I'm moving, right? It's when I'm moving. Who needs to illuminate the still ground in front of us? And I'm telling you that God's word has a very different effect on those who've begun moving according to what it says. Put that to the test this week. Have a devotional time tomorrow and make a commitment beforehand that whatever I read, no matter how dangerous I will be compelled by God now to live this out all day. See what it does to your life. I think you will marvel at the fresh taste of God's word in your heart. In conclusion, let me just say, this is one of the, the more compelling parts of the whole psalm for me. I see this dance woven throughout Psalm 119. This dance between a psalmist saying, I love your word, I want to obey you, I commit myself to this. And at the same time, every other verse seems to be, but God, you have to do all the heavy lifting. You have to help me because as much as I want to do that, I can't jumpstart this heart of mine. Look at verses 33 to 40. And just in case you know, you're falling asleep now, I put the important phrases underlined and in red, right? What is he saying to the Lord? You teach me, give me, direct me. You turn my heart, turn my eyes, preserve my life, fulfill your promise. You take away my disgrace. It, he's imploring God to do what he cannot do, even in the same breath that he makes his commitments. And then at the end of all of that, he says, and because you're doing all of that, I can honestly say how I long for your precepts. Preserve my life. 
in your righteousness. I think that's a pretty good summation of the entire Christian experience, if you ask me. That we commit ourselves to do what is right in God's eyes, all the while knowing in humility that I can't honor that commitment. And so even as I intend to do what I know I want to do, I cry out to God for the power to become who I want to be, who He wants me to be. This is the dance we'll do for the rest of our lives. God is not a three strikes, you're out God. He says, don't you ever give up. You keep coming to me. Ask me for the real heavy lifting. I'll do it for you. Just don't give up, and I will not give up on you. And I want to encourage you, if you've tried to pick up the Bible a thousand times, and you've put it down a thousand times, make it a thousand and one. Pick it up this week. Because in those words, you're going to find life. And God will scramble things up for the better as you connect to him through his word. I don't want this to just be the close of the sermon where we just move on to the finishing rituals. Just for this one moment, pause and quiet with me and make some commitment in your heart about this at whatever level you feel safe and honest doing. But don't just hear the words and check out. Make a commitment right now about how you're going to respond to what you just heard. And as you're doing that, I'm going to make my own commitment And then I'm going to just lead us in a time of responsive prayer. Let's pray. You know that little commitment you just whispered up to God, spoke into your own heart. It could be the very powerful start of a whole new way. But you don't really have the power yourself to follow through on it that you may have just said, I'm going to wake up at 4 a.m. tomorrow and read my Bible. And your alarm will go off at 8 o'clock. What we need to say is, Lord, you hear my heart. Help me get there now. Please. So let's just pray one more time. This time, don't just make a commitment, but remember that all of Christian life is an absolute humble dependence on God. So let's do it that way now. Let's really commit but say, help me, God. Let's pray. Lord, we just confess as a church, even on behalf of an entire generation, a nation filled with believers who own millions of copies freely distributed of the precious word of God. And yet so little of it has penetrated into the depths of our hearts. We confess it not simply in guilt, but knowing how much we have robbed ourselves of the very good things you have for us. How poorer our lives have been. And so we want more. We want it all. We want the full picture of the life you promised for us. Bring us now, Lord God, as a church, back to your word taking out our shovels and just digging in, stripping away some of those competing flavors in our mouths. We want to see and savor your word to experience its sweetness as we read, as we reflect. Help us to slow our lives down, carve out space and time. Help us to reconnect also to you 
For this isn't just a book. These are your words. And we know you, God. And this week, as these couple hundred commitments that went up are put into motion, we pray that you will bless the people of Harvest Community Church as we experience together a revival of our love for your precious word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.